Well, let's go to God in prayer once more before we go to his word. Let's pray. Father, we, we pray now that we might know the, the power of the resurrection at work in us through your spirit, through your word. Lord, help us to understand, enlighten us, that we might have your help to live by it. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. What do people learn about when they look at your life? The most obvious answer is that they learn about you. But deep down, I think we all want to live for something much greater than ourselves. We want our lives to mean something. We want them to say more than just facts about us. But in order for that to happen... You need a community. Have you ever thought about that? That on our own, as individuals, our lives primarily communicate meaning about us. And in modern times, we've made that mostly about how we feel, which is something subjective. But a community forms around something bigger than the individuals that make it up. So what do people learn about your life when they look at you and the community that you're a part of? I think that's an especially important question for us as a church. How can we be faithful as one body made up of many parts to communicate to the world the truth of the gospel and the glory of Christ? In our passage today, Paul addresses many different individuals in the church at Rome. And so he helps us answer that question. So if you have your Bibles with you, please turn with me to Romans chapter 16. Romans 16. If you're using one of the church Bibles, you can find that on page 1009. 1009. And we're looking at chapter 16, verses 1 through 20 today. Now, as a reminder, the first 11 chapters are all about the Christian faith. Paul wants to be clear on the gospel with this church that he's writing to. And so he tells us that God's wrath is coming against us because we're all sinners. We've made life all about us. But God sent his son Jesus to live a perfect life on our behalf, die for our sins on the cross, and suffer God's wrath in our place. And then he rose again to give us life. So that everyone who puts their faith in Jesus and repents of their sin, repents from living all for themselves, will be saved from God's wrath, adopted into his family, and promised eternal life. That's the faith. But part of the reason that Paul's writing about the faith in this letter is to advance the obedience of faith. And so in chapters 12 through 15, he describes true worship in the life of a Christian. It's a life that's lived in view of God's mercy, where we offer ourselves as living sacrifices to him. So we seek to live like Christ and to make him known. And that's one of the main reasons that Paul's writing this letter. He's asking for the church's partnership in doing the work of the gospel. He wants them to support him with money, fellowship, and prayer. And having asked for that help in chapter 15, 
he now expresses his heart for this church, speaking to individuals in their community. And the different lives in this text teach us about the gospel and the glory of Christ as we see a community of people who love one another and serve Christ together. And so here's what we want to take away from this passage this morning as a church ourselves. Be a real community of love in Christ and service to Christ. Be a real community of love in Christ and service to Christ. I pray that coming out of this sermon today, that when when people get to know us as individuals, they would somehow get to know our church and be led to Jesus. So if you're taking notes, there are two questions that we're going to ask the text in order to help us do this. First, what should we be like? What should we, our community, be like? And we see this in verses 1 through 16 and 21 through 23. And second, which will be much shorter, how can we stay that way? How can we stay that way? Verses 17 through 28. So, wanting to be a community that is uh, known for our love in Christ and service to Christ, what should we be like? And that first point, we're going to have sort of three sub-points. We should be loving, unified, and on mission. Loving, unified, and on mission. And then we'll think about how we can stay that way. So first, what should we be like? Look at verse 1. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, who is a servant of the church in Centre. So you should welcome her in the Lord in a manner worthy of the saints and assist her in whatever matter she may require your help. For indeed, she has been a benefactor of many and of me also. Give my greetings to Prisca and Aquila, my co-workers in Christ Jesus, who risked their own necks for my life. Not only do I thank them, but so do all the Gentile churches. Greet also the church that meets in their home. Greet my dear friend Epinetus, who is the first convert to Christ from Asia. Greet Mary, who has worked very hard for you. Greet Andronicus and Junia, my fellow Jews and fellow prisoners. They are noteworthy in the eyes of the apostles, and they were also in Christ before me. Greet Ampliatus, my dear friend in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, our co-worker in Christ, and my dear friend Stachus. Greet Apelles, who is approved in Christ. Greet those who belong to the household of Aristobulus. Greet Herodian, my fellow Jew. Greet those who belong to the household of Narcissus, who are in the Lord. Greet Tryphania and Tryphosa, who have worked hard in the Lord. Greet my dear friend Persis, who has worked very hard in the Lord. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, also his mother and mine. Greet Asyncritus, Phlegon, Hermes, Petrobas, Hermas, and the brothers and sisters who are with them. Greet Philologus and Julia, Nerus and his sister, and Olympus, and all the saints who are with them. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ send you greetings. Now, beyond the names themselves, the really impressive thing is the number of them. This is a church that Paul's never been to. And yet, he somehow knows all these people personally. How's that possible? Well, some of them he knows from elsewhere. So, Phoebe, in verse 1, is a servant of the church in Centurae. 
Centuria is a town of about four miles east of Corinth where Paul planted a church. So she's in Rome as a visitor, in verse 2, probably as the one who's carrying this very letter, which is why they need to receive her or welcome her when she comes. But then Paul knows Prisca and Aquila, in verse 3, as visitors from Rome. Uh, Paul met them in Corinth also. But Acts 18.2 tells us that they were there because Emperor Claudius forced the Jews to leave Rome somewhere around 49 A.D. And after being converted, as he was preaching at the synagogues, they became co-workers in the gospel, and they spent a lot of time with him at the church in Ephesus. That could be where they risked their lives for Paul. Because Acts 19 tells us that he was nearly killed in a riot there. Now, here's what's cool. Luke doesn't mention Prisca and Aquila again all throughout the book of Acts. So we last see them in the Bible in Ephesus. But we know from history that the Emperor Claudius dies in 54 AD. And here we are, much later in Paul's ministry, and Aquila and Priscilla show back up in Rome. They were apparently able to go back home. That's just a mark of authenticity. In the Bible, we can trust it. It's a real book, accurate with history. So that's why they're in Rome. Andronicus and Junia are most likely in Rome because of the Jewish persecution in the homeland. So they might have been part of that original scattering of, of the disciples. Because verse 7 says that they were in Christ even before Paul. Which means they had to have come to Christ as Jews near Jerusalem. And they're known by the other apostles as well. Now we don't know how Paul knows everyone here. But you can see how real these relationships are. And part of the reason is because people traveled a lot more back then than we might realize. But the other reason is because the church was just that connected in the, early, in the first century. It's been referred to as the holy internet. The love between Christians, especially persecuted Christians, has them valuing each other in such a way that, that they just come to know the individuals that are part of the other churches as people travel around and hear about what's going on in that place. This is what God's doing here and there. Let me tell you about so-and-so. And as they travel and depend on one another, they get to know one another, or at least about one another. It's, it's like how many people here know Jen and Joel Saddam. And some of you have never met them. But you know stories about them. And you love Mount Hope Church. And more than seeing Paul's knowledge of, this, of these people, is seeing his love for them. We see his heart for the church in this passage. He doesn't just write them and, tell, and say, tell everyone there I said hi. But to each individual, greet them for me. And it's the way he does that. Greet my dear friend, Epinetus. Greet Ampliatus, my dear friend. And my dear friend, Stachys. Greet my dear friend, Paris. Greet Rufus, also his mother, and mine. You can just hear the affection in Paul's greeting. Now, I'd understand that if you were going to spend an evening with Paul, you might be intimidated after reading Romans. You know, you may want to brush up on your theology and prepare yourself for a serious meal. But a quick survey of Paul's relationships suggests the opposite. Paul's the kind of guy you love being around. He's always giving thanks, always finding a way to encourage people, always rejoicing in the Lord. 
Clearly, he'd look at you here as a, as a beloved brother or sister, as his dear friend, or maybe with the affection that someone has for their own mother. And he'd remember your name. Maybe the best exposition of this chapter is given by Paul himself in 1 Thessalonians 2.8. We cared so much for you that we were pleased to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives, because you had become dear to us. Paul's just as interested in people as he is in theology. Because you can't get to know the grace of God without loving people. Those things go together. A healthy church doesn't just have great theology. They're moved by that theology. It affects them with affections for Christ and his people. So if you're someone here who loves books, I'm with you. That's great. But don't ever forget they're just a means. They're not the end. Knowledge is a means to loving God and loving people. So church, we want to be a community full of godly affection for one another because God has made us one in Christ. In fact, if you just notice in verses 5, 8, 12, and 13, each one of those affectionate greetings are coupled with the phrase, in the Lord. My dear friend, in the Lord. If we're a community created by the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of His Holy Spirit, love ought to characterize our life together. And that's why we ought to at least greet one another. It's a command that Paul gives in verse 16. Greet one another with a holy kiss. Now, in case you're wondering, we're not implementing the literal expression of this command. Sorry, Raph. <laughs> Scusate. Thank goodness for COVID, right? Um, but we do want to obey the heart of this. The idea here is that the, the verbal greeting... It is, is confirmed by some tangible expression of that love. And different cultures have different ways of expressing that. So maybe that's a hug or a handshake. Maybe it's as simple as greeting someone with a, with a genuine smile. But we don't want to walk in here as a bunch of individuals like we're just checking off a box. You know, coming to church for me, doing what I got to do, getting out of church, what I can get out of it, and then leaving without, fit, with, without acknowledging one another. Just failing to obey this command to, to greet one another in love, with affection. So greet one another. And be like Jesus and do this with the children as well. You know, make it clear, like Jesus, that we're glad they're here. Say hi to them. Learn their names. And kids, if we say hi to you, say hi back. You know, stop and acknowledge us. We like that. But we are to be in an affectionate, loving community. Let's have love for one another and let it be revealed in your words and actions. Offer a tender smile or, you know, that, that look to someone that just lets them know, I see you and I'm glad you're here. That's, that kind of thing can be contagious. And you can almost feel the desire of those with Paul to do the same thing. It's contagious. Look at verse 21. Timothy, my co-worker, and Lucius, Jason, and Sosipater, and fellow countrymen, greet you. I, Tertius, who wrote this letter, greet you in the Lord. Gaius, who is host to me and to the whole church, greets you. 
Erastus, the city treasurer, and our brother Cordus greet you. It's like the guys in the, that are with Paul just butt in at the end of the letter. Hey, tell, tell them we said hi too. You know, greet them for me. And I love how Tertius does it. In the Lord. But also because he lets them know he wrote the letter. Not that he's the author. We know from chapter 1, verse 1, that, that Paul's the author. But we also know that Paul had problems with his eyesight. And when he wrote personally, he had to write very large letters like he did in Galatians. But in a letter as long as Romans, to save precious supplies, he gets the help of his friend and scribe, Tertius. In fact, it's one of the things I enjoyed most about studying this chapter. It's all the marks of authenticity. We already talked about the historical accuracy of some of the people here and Paul's travels. But if you just, if you just see that there, Tertius is letting him know he wrote it. There's just all these examples that this was a genuine letter written to real people. That's, that's what it sounds like. It sounds nothing like the pseudepigrapha or the, the false gospels, which are much more generic. They don't contain any greetings like this. This is the kind of stuff that shows up in a real letter between real people. And here's why I love this so much and why it's so important. It's because it means that the rest of the letter is just as real. The wrath of God really is coming against all unrighteousness. And we're all guilty of it. And no amount of good works can save us. But Jesus really did come and die for our sins. He was raised from the dead. And God really does count us as righteous in His sight by faith. And so the promise of eternal life is guaranteed to us. All of that is real like this community. They're a real church created by the gospel and joined together in Christ. And so we should be loving like them, but also unified. Ten times in this chapter we read the phrase, in the Lord, or in Christ. Sometimes it's after calling them dear friends, like we've just seen. But sometimes it's after describing someone as a co-worker in, in Christ, like he does in verse 9 with Urbanus. But then sometimes it's almost like the highest praise Paul can give. Like in verse 7, when Paul ends his praise of Andronicus and Junior by saying, they were also in Christ before me. Or in verse 10, I love this, greet Apelles, who is approved in Christ. You almost get the sense that Apelles had, had really messed up somehow and, and didn't feel worthy to be a member of that community. Regardless, Paul roots his love for that brother in the gospel. He is approved in Christ. Greet him for me. Likewise, Rufus in verse 13 is solely described for us in these words. Chosen in the Lord. And that's so instructive for our life together. That defines Paul's relationship with him. The, the basis for the greeting is that Rufus is a Christian. Greet him for me. In fact, this is why at the end of verse 16, all the churches send them greetings. Why? Because they're Christians. All the churches of Christ. That's why Paul knows and loves this community. It's because they're in the Lord. It's why they're a real community. They're in Christ. Otherwise, they wouldn't be. They wouldn't be. Oh, this, is, this is great. The differences we see in these individuals would normally keep them from being in the same community. 
There's enough diversity in this text that they shouldn't be doing life together. So the list of people here pictures a church that's made up of Jews and Gentiles. Men and women. Some of which are married, like Priscilla and Aquila. Others are single. Some are from Rome. Others are outsiders. Phoebe seems to be a wealthy benefactor. Others not so much. Ampliatus, Urbanus, Hermes, Philologus, and Julia are all common names of Roman slaves. But in the same church is Aristobulus, verse 10, the grandson of Herod the Great and the friend of Emperor Claudius. Not only him, but Narcissus, verse 11, was a well-known, rich, and powerful free man who exercised great influence on Claudius. So this diverse group of men and women, married and single, Jews and Gentiles, locals and foreigners, rich and poor, high status and low, are commanded by Paul back in chapter 15, verse 6, to accept one another with one heart and one voice to glorify God. Because the many different parts make up the one body of Christ. They're all in the Lord. So, together then, not as individuals, they uniquely bring praise to God's glorious grace and the power of the gospel. Now, suppose the church in Rome took an approach to church growth like many churches do today. People like to worship with people who are like them. And churches grow by catering to specific groups. So they'll say, we're a church for young professionals. Or we're a church for hipsters, for college students, for the suburbanite, whatever. And that's not as impressive as what we see here in Romans 16. The world understands how and why people who look alike and act alike and think alike love one another. Like Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, even tax collectors love other tax collectors. There's nothing special about that. But when there's unity among a diverse group of people who normally be divided, that speaks to the power of God's grace and the gospel. And so we ought to value whatever diversity we have in the church. Wherever you see a difference in someone, whatever it is, whether it's ethnicity, personality, age, education, dress, whatever. Move towards that difference in love with a view towards Christ's saving work. You see unity with that person where the world sees a difference. So a loving relationship with that person or a loving relationship among a community of people who are diverse brings glory to God in the gospel. The reason for a person that's part of the majority culture in our church might show preference to the minority person in our church, whatever that difference is, isn't driven by dynamics of power and oppression. In the church, it's driven by love in Christ. He's supreme. His spirit fills us all. The vision that the Bible gives us of the church triumphant on the day of Christ Jesus is one who is a beautiful bride dressed for her husband, made up of every tribe, tongue, and nation. And so a church that's built around homogeneity, sameness, is a defective church. Not telling us anything really about the gospel, 
but more about us. This is what we like. We want to be a church where the differences are celebrated because our identity is the same. We are in Christ. So if you're a Christian, you want to know the church and be known by the church so that as an individual in this community, you bring glory to God. That's the kind of community we want to be. And so here are three easy ways to know and be known by the church. First, attend regularly. Come Sunday mornings and evenings because if you're present on a regular basis, it's going to help you know and be known. And if you're not present, it's not going to happen. Second, pray through the church directory. If you are praying for the members of this church on a regular basis, God's Spirit is going to unite you with the people His Spirit dwells in. You are going to find that you love the people that you pray for, care about them in such a way that you're going to be drawn towards people. So that's going to help you. Third, it's a bit harder, is create time in your calendar to find ways of putting into practice what we promise in our church covenant. Rejoice with those who rejoice. So maybe that means you need to go to a baby shower. Or mourn with those who mourn. And maybe that just mean, that means you need to go to someone's house and just, and just sit with someone who's recovering from surgery or suffering some kind of loss and just listen to them. Pray with them. But somehow, seek to do one another's spiritual good in whatever way you can come up with. It's, it's an entrepreneurial ministry that we, that we want to have here. And so maybe that's you inviting people over to dinner or meeting up to read a book and praying with them on a regular basis. Or maybe you're just finding ways to gather with one another to enjoy one another's company like Paul says he wants to do in Rome. But our unity as a church isn't displayed, isn't just displayed in our love for one another, but in our cooperation. We should be a community on mission. Seven times in six verses, verse 2, 3, 6, 10, 12, and 21, Paul talks about individuals in this church who work. And he's not talking about their job, but the spiritual work of the church, the ministry. And he says it's hard work. We know for them that it involved great sacrifice, enduring persecution, actually risking their lives, giving generously, and speaking the truth. You see, the church isn't just a community that exists for the sake of community. Since Jesus is our King, He calls us into his service for his kingdom. If we are in Christ, we are on mission. Working for gospel fruit in our church and beyond. We want to see people in eternity because of the work that goes on here. And this is the kind of work that the church in Rome was doing. Paul started with Phoebe in verse 1, a servant of the church in Centurae. He describes her with a kind of title here. Literally, she's called a deaconess of the church which is why they ought to receive her in a manner worthy of the saints, or one of the reasons that they should assist her in whatever matter she may need. It's because she has helped many. In fact, thinking about Phoebe, there are nine women in this passage that Paul greets, and it's obvious that he thinks highly of all of them. And six of them are described as co-workers in the Lord, or as those who worked very hard in the Lord. Now, this is the same Paul who teaches about different roles for men and women in the church, and apparently... He highly values those different roles in ministry. And I just want to say that reading this, thinking about the women in the church who are working here, made me thankful for all the women of this church who work hard. 
think we all see how hard Jess Schaefer works as she serves us in the area of hospitality. Or Joanne in children's ministry. Or Molly and Lisa in college ministry. But there are so many other women in this church who work hard in the, in the, uh, in the Lord. Like all the, the counseling of women like Sharon Bettis do. Or the various women who put Bible studies together like Amy Bullock. Or just think about the number of people here who spend precious time sitting with people like Stephanie Thomason. Or ministry that's been stirred up by women like Jess Cunha. I, I think about how hard my wife works to support me in my ministry here. I could go on and on and on. I know I'm just other names have come to me and are coming to me right now of people who are doing work in the church. And I'm not mentioning you because I don't see it. I'm, I'm not doing it because I don't have time. Praise the Lord. We, we can't recognize every person here, including the men in this church that are working hard for the Lord. I think that's the kind of important ministry that's reflected in this passage. And it's good if we recognize this kind of service in the church among ourselves. Because we're not here just for ourselves. It's not about us. Ultimately, it's about Christ. We're here together with the limited amount of time that we have on earth to get something done for the kingdom. So give thanks for godly service. And if you see it, express it. Express thanks to that person, just like Paul does. Maybe you do that by returning the favor, as he tells the church to do for Phoebe. Or maybe you do it by giving public praise, by coming back tonight and doing it during the evening service, where we take time each week to do. But this is the kind of community that we're called to be. This is what we should be like. A community that knows and loves one another, that's unified in Christ, and serves Him in the work of the ministry. And to be faithful like that to the end, we need to ask a second question. How can we stay like that? How can we stay like that? Look at verse 17. Now I urge you, brothers and sisters, to watch out for those who create divisions and obstacles contrary to the teaching that you learned. Avoid them, because such people do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. They deceive the hearts of the unsuspecting with smooth talk and flattering words. And that feels like an abrupt change. But love protects. And that's where Paul's heart for his dear friends goes in these verses. He wants the church to remain as a faithful church. So the first thing he does is urge them to watch out for those who would create divisions and obstacles contrary to the teaching that you learned. Once again, unity is at the forefront of Paul's concern. I hope you can see that as you keep reading through the Bible. Unity is is crucial for displaying the gospel. But it's not unity for unity's sake. It's unity in the Lord. And it's the truth about Christ that creates that unity. So whatever is contrary to the gospel that that brings us into Christ, well, that's going to create division. That's why it's never worth compromising on hard truths. Something might sound offensive and potentially divide, but without the truth, unity is on its way out anyway. The obstacle Paul's warning us about are the kinds of things that upset people's faith. Maybe it's the disputable matters of chapter 14 that some teachers want to emphasize. 
But we might apply it more broadly to whatever ideas or practices distract us from, from Christ. From, from the, that aren't essential to the gospel. Paul says, avoid those people. They're not doing you any spiritual good. Paul says they serve themselves, in verse 18, not Christ. Their teaching, their leadership, is ultimately about what's in it for them. They're serving their own appetites. And I think people naively believe that, that we're going to recognize those people easily. You know, that, that, that we know, we'll, we'll know that we see that when we see that. And so we'll avoid them. But it's not obvious who these people are. Paul says they deceive. And the thing about deception is you can't see it. You believe it. It's it's deceptive because it's believable. Paul describes these people in a way that makes them the least likely to suspect, actually. They win you with words that make you feel good. And flattery never sounds evil unless you know the heart of the person. And you can't see that. Have you ever noticed how everyone in Rhode Island talks about how bad the politics are here? Except for their guy. You know, their, their guy is not one of the corrupt ones or incompetent ones, you know. So, we, so everybody just keeps voting in the same people. You know, we all end up with the same people, and yet no one's happy with Rhode Island politics. That's amazing, right? How, how does that happen? Well, we ought to avoid making the same mistake in the church with pastors. How do we do that if it's deceptive? I mean, maybe I'm making you suspicious of me. How can you be confident in your pastors here? Well, it's here in the text. Pay attention to how we use the Bible. Make sure our teaching isn't contrary to what you read in Scripture. And to do that well, you need to be a student of Scripture yourself. And just looking at this text, you should keep in mind the Bible doesn't flatter you. It tells us of God's mercy and grace. It tells us of his unfailing love. But it also calls us to repentance. The Bible confronts us. It, makes, it places demands upon us. Because it loved, God loves us. And it's the same thing with your pastors and friends. They're, they should be willing to say hard things to you. They should challenge you. Now, I personally not only want to be known for the way I handle God's word and how I... I doing my best by God's grace to live it, I I would also love to be known for my encouragement. So I I do want to make my brothers and sisters here feel good. But as pastors, we also have to be willing to say hard things and not just from the pulpit. And in my experience, most of the time, there's no possibility of that being self-serving. It's much, e- much easier to skip over hard truth or ignore sin in the body. And so what you want to do right now is just make up your mind that if we come to you with hard truth from God's word, you should receive it. Because we're not being deceptive. It might not always feel good, but we're working for your good. And that's true of every member in this church when we challenge one another. We're called to counsel one another and in love protect one another so that we're a faithful community. Paul's exhorting them to stay this way and encouraging them with these words. Verse 19. The report of your obedience has reached everyone. Therefore, I rejoice over you. But I want you to be wise about what is good and yet innocent about what is evil. 
The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus be with you. Paul's rejoicing in their obedience so far. But he knows that Adam and Eve walked with God in the garden for at least a time. And just like Satan deceived the very first community of God's people in the Garden of Eden, he's trying to do that today in the church. And that's why Paul's telling them or warning them about deceptive teachers. And a good way to guard against deception is to do what Adam and Eve failed to do. Be wise about what is good and innocent about what is evil. You see, in the garden, Adam and Eve only had knowledge of what's good, not evil. But Satan deceived them. How did he do it? He twisted God's word, making Eve doubt the goodness of it. In other words, she was fooled about what is good. And then he spoke to the desires of her heart. He flattered her with the thought that she could be like God, having knowledge of both good and evil. And so she fell. She took the fruit and ate it. Prior to that, she had no knowledge of evil. And Paul's saying to the church, don't let Satan do that to you through these teachers. Be wise about what's good innocent of evil. Paul said back in chapter 1 that we suppress the truth by our unrighteousness. By our evil. So guys, if you don't want to mess with your understanding of God's word, if you want to avoid listening to false teachers, don't mess with sin. Be innocent of every kind of evil. Forbidden fruit tastes good, but it's not good if you could only ask Adam and Eve. But you could probably ask the person next to you about their own bitter experience with the temporary pleasures of sin. And I'm not just talking about actions that appear good, but also sinful ideas that sound good. Be wise. For your own faithful obedience and joy in Christ and the health of our church community. Be wise here. Know yourself. Sometimes it's just better to avoid the kinds of things that raise doubt and unbelief. It's not because we need to be afraid about the truth of ideas. I love the truth. I'm all about searching for the truth, seeking the truth. I, I, I don't want to be up here pastoring if the Bible's not true. But we do need to be afraid of indwelling sin in our hearts. We're fallen. And so I need to be on guard and watch out for what my own heart might do with what's false. Eve knew the truth. But it was her desire that scripture says was her downfall. So Satan twisted God's word to to get her there. But when she saw that the tree was desirable to make one wise... She took it and fell. Paul wants the church to know that what they have is the true gospel. False teachers corrupt that teaching, and they hold, when they hold that out to the church, it's equivalent to what Satan did in the garden. Church, the gospel reopens the gates of paradise and brings us into fellowship with God 
The life of faith should be a taste of heaven on earth. But if we allow the truth to be corrupted by the desire for what's evil, it's going to be another fall. It's why whenever one of the pastors or preachers here preach the word, we're working hard to get the text right. We're not trying to come up with a talk. We're not trying to make it relevant. We're trying to get the argument of the text right and then to get it faithfully across. And you need to hold us to that and desire that kind of preaching if we're going to remain a faithful community on mission with Christ. And if that's what happens, we'll win the spiritual war. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. So Paul's sticking with the allusion to Genesis 3 here with a promise in verse 15. Genesis 3.15. God said that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent and the serpent would bruise his heel. Now, of course, that's fulfilled in Christ, born of a woman into this world to do what Adam couldn't do. And he crushed Satan, but it was through his death. The bruising of Christ was the means to victory over Satan. By taking on our sins, dying under the penalty of God's wrath, and then coming back to life, Jesus won. And by virtue of being in union with Christ, being in the Lord as a community, Paul can say with confidence to this church, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. He takes Genesis 3.15, which is about Christ, and now he says, this is going to happen for the church. You're going to have victory over Christ. Or over Satan. Paul understands that the cross and resurrection were like the D-Day event of the spiritual war against evil in this world. It's over. But it's not done. The end is certain. But it's not yet. The devil hasn't yet been consigned to his eternal prison. So he's still roaming around like a roaring lion seeking whom he can devour. But the church comes in after D-Day, so to speak. And in essence, finishes Satan off. As we go about the work of the gospel, bringing salvation to all those that Jesus purchased with his blood, when the full number of Jews and Gentiles comes in, so will the end. And in that sense, the God of peace will crush Satan underneath the church's feet. So listen, whenever persecution is endured, or whenever biblical compromise is resisted, Satan's being defeated in the church. We're always engaged in spiritual warfare here. When we we gather like this in obedience to God's commands each Sunday morning to sing his praise, love his people, be conformed to his word, we're engaging in spiritual warfare. And the church has been doing it for thousands of years and continues to win. Satan hates our gatherings. Don't miss it. When we leave this place and we do life together, helping one another in all the ways that Paul references in this greeting, we're engaging in spiritual warfare. When we fight back the thoughts of unbelief and confront the lies of this world, we are continuing to overcome the work of the devil and his deception. When we work for gospel fruit and support that work, we're not just living in the flesh and blood, but engaging in a fight against the principalities and powers of this world. Are you living with your eyes open to that? Too often, 
I don't think we even acknowledge the reality of such power in this world. We just live as functional atheists, as if everything's material, no spiritual forces behind anything. And that leads us vulnerable to Satan's deception. Students, there are, there are powers at work in your classes in some of what you hear. There are demonic forces behind what we watch or see online. Open your eyes instead to God's grace. It's everywhere. It's in every good gift that you experience in this life. It's in His Word. It's in the hundreds of testimonies in this room. And it's in the fellowship of His Holy Spirit. We live in a community that is full of godly affection for one another in Christ. Displaying our unity among the diversity of people that God has saved. And working hard to, com- to proclaim the faith and live in obedience to the faith. And that kind of community means something. It says a lot more to the world than any individual can. The church, the community here, says Jesus is alive. The gospel is true. His spirit is at work and life is in him. He's with us and therefore so is his grace. And if his grace is with us, like Paul prays, will be the kind of community that says something about the glory of Christ, not ourselves. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for what your Spirit has created. We thank you for giving up your life that that might happen. And God, we, praise, we, we pray that you would be glorified in us through our love for one another, and service to your Son. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.